Hello everybody. This is the first of a series of podcasts from the British Society for Haematology, covering the different aspects of haematology from recently published BSH guidelines. I'm Dr Sue Pavard, Consultant Haematologist from Oxford University Hospitals Foundation Trust and Associate Senior Lecturer at St Edmund Hall, Oxford University. My interest in obstetric haematology started when I first became a consultant in 1996 and was responsible for answering queries from the obstetricians. I soon appreciated the need for close collaboration and early planning and I formed a combined clinic with my obstetric colleague Dr Christina Oppenheimer. Numbers of referrals increased exponentially, reflecting how common haematological problems are in pregnancy and how complex many of them can be. For example, two of the most common medical problems in pregnancy are anemia and thrombocytopenia, and two of the leading causes of maternal death are haemorrhage and thrombosis. These conditions are primarily or secondarily haematological disorders. The stakes are high in this patient group, and without careful planning, things can rapidly and suddenly go wrong. So our emphasis is always on prevention, anticipation, and a careful attention to detail. Multidisciplinary collaboration is essential, and our team includes obstetric anaesthetists, midwives, and specialist nurses. We would also seek advice from other specialists, physicians, surgeons, psychologists, if needed. Our aim is to make women fit for pregnancy, safe for delivery and be able to care for their newborn baby. Also, anticipating and preventing problems for the foetus and newborn. Today I'm going to talk about the UK guideline on the management of iron deficiency in pregnancy, which highlights these aspects of care. Focusing on identification of women at risk of iron depletion, early detection of anemia and prompt effective management without unnecessary delays or investigations. I'm going to divide this podcast into three parts. The prevalence and impact of iron deficiency in pregnancy, how to diagnose it, and how to manage it. Well, iron deficiency is highly prevalent. It's the most common nutritional deficiency worldwide, and accounts for the majority of cases of anemia in pregnancy. Anemia is evident in 30 to 40% of women in the UK presenting in pregnancy. Iron deficiency is usually due to an imbalance of demand and supply. Demand increases as pregnancy advances, and whilst absorption capacity increases, the iron deficit builds up, and many women simply don't have sufficient iron reserves to meet this demand. Whilst the majority of iron is needed for erythropoiesis, Iron is actually needed for every cell in the body, including fetal and placental cells. Iron deficiency anemia has been linked to poor health outcomes in mother, fetus and infant. For the mother, iron deficiency with or without anemia is associated with maternal fatigue, a potentially poorer quality of life and increased risk of postpartum depression. Iron deficiency is a progressive process with depletion of the body's stored iron while red cell production is preserved until that becomes insufficient and anemia develops. Maternal anemia may also increase the risk of postpartum haemorrhage. A large prospective observational study at two maternity services in the UK found that 60% of women with a haemoglobin of less than 85 grams per litre 
sustained postpartum hemorrhage, with a quarter progressing to severe PPH. One explanation is impaired uterine contractility due to reduced availability of oxygen. Maternal mortality may also be increased. A recent study adjusting for confounding factors such as postpartum hemorrhage, massive transfusion and admission to intensive care units found that a haemoglobin of less than 70 grams per litre, antenatally or postpartum, was associated with a twofold increase in mortality in low- and middle-income countries. Studies also from low- and middle-income countries found an association between severe antenatal anemia and stillbirth and perinatal death, and with small for gestational age infants and low birth weight infants. Most fetal iron is acquired in the third trimester in preparation for the high growth rate in the first four to six months after birth. The late fetal and early postnatal period are recognised as a critical period where there is rapid brain development, high neural plasticity and high nutritional requirement. Regulation of fetal iron levels is a complex process and in maternal iron deficiency anemia there is an increase in placental iron receptors and iron absorption across the placenta to maximise fetal iron supply. Despite this, Studies have found that maternal iron deficiency at delivery is associated with a lower serum ferritin in cord blood of neonates, suggesting that the prioritisation of fetal iron supply must be compromised at some point. One study found that cord iron levels were reduced when mothers had serum ferritin levels below 13 micrograms per litre. So we know that iron deficiency is highly prevalent and is associated with poor maternal and neonatal health. But how do we diagnose it? There are no reliable diagnostic tests to identify it. Symptoms are many, but non-specific, such as headache, weakness, fatigue, breathlessness. The best test is a serum ferritin, as a low serum ferritin is diagnostic of iron deficiency. However, a normal ferritin does not exclude iron deficiency, as it's an acute phase protein and pregnancy is associated with an elevation of acute phase proteins as well as changes in iron utilisation and metabolism, both of which can affect ferritin levels. Furthermore, there is ongoing debate as to which ferritin level to use as a threshold for diagnosing iron deficiency. In the UK, the majority of clinicians currently use 30 micrograms per litre. So, to avoid costs, delays and difficulty interpreting serum ferritin or other tests, we propose that women have a full blood count at their booking clinic and 28 weeks, and those identified to be anemic are started on oral iron supplements without delay, and a haemoglobin response after two to three weeks is used to confirm the diagnosis of iron deficiency. One exception to this would be women with known haemoglobinopathy. They would require a serum ferritin first to exclude an iron loading state. If the haemoglobinopathy status is not yet known, iron should be started to avoid delay in treating a potentially iron deficient woman, but the haemoglobinopathy status and a serum ferritin checked at the same time. But anemia is a late stage of iron deficiency. Depletion of iron from the body occurs before the onset of anemia. 
So women without anemia may have significant iron depletion. And indeed, a recent study of 104 consecutive non-anemic women at Booking found iron depletion in 42%. Therefore, it is vital that consideration is given to who may be at risk. For example, women with previous anemia or a history of bleeding, those on their third or more pregnancy, or who have had pregnancies in quick succession with less than one year interval between, women expecting twins or triplets, those following a vegetarian or vegan diet, or those with generally poor dietary habits. These women should either be started on oral iron empirically or have a serum ferritin checked first. Whilst all pregnant women should receive dietary advice to optimise iron intake and absorption, dietary modifications will not be adequate to correct an established iron deficiency. So the next consideration is how to give oral iron. Previously, doses of 100 to 200 milligrams of elemental iron daily were recommended, but we now know more about the absorption and regulation of iron. We know that high doses can actually impair absorption due to an elevation of the regulatory hormone hepcidin, and that daily or alternate day dosing is associated with a better absorption profile than administration twice or three times daily. Indeed, this lower dosing regime significantly improves tolerance to oral iron because it leaves less unabsorbed iron in the gut. The optimal dose per tablet has also been determined to be 40 to 80 milligrams daily. This suits us perfectly in the UK because our standard iron salts are ferrous fumarate and ferrous sulfate, both of which contain 65 milligrams of elemental iron per tablet. Multivitamins and off-the-shelf preparations usually have insufficient elemental iron to correct anemia and furthermore often contain other minerals which interfere with iron absorption. Slow-release preparations are also not advisable as they release their iron beyond the absorption site in the gut. Absorption of iron is impaired by many substances and therefore food, drink and other medications should be avoided for at least one hour after taking oral iron. Early morning administration is preferable when hepcidin levels are lowest. So my recommendation is one hour before breakfast, if busy women have an hour before breakfast, otherwise two hours afterwards. The degree of increase in haemoglobin that can be achieved with iron supplements will depend on the haemoglobin and iron status at the start of supplementation, ongoing losses, iron absorption and other factors contributing to anemia, such as micronutrient deficiencies, infections and renal impairment. However, compliance and intolerance of oral iron are the usual factors limiting efficacy, and if there is a failure of treatment or time is running out, then intravenous iron is necessary. Systematic reviews and meta-analyses found that women receiving intravenous iron achieved their target haemoglobin more often, had a better haemoglobin response at four weeks, and fewer side effects than women receiving oral iron. The risk of anaphylaxis is very small, somewhere between 1 in 1,000 and 1 in 10,000. But contraindications would include a history of anaphylaxis or serious reactions to parenteral iron therapy, first trimester of pregnancy, active acute or chronic bacteremia, and decompensated liver disease. 
Despite best practice, some women enter labour with iron deficiency anemia. And, as for all women, it's important that active measures to minimise blood loss at birth are planned. Iron deficiency anemia should not influence the planned mode or timing of birth, but it might influence the location. For instance, women with a haemoglobin of less than 100 grams per litre should be delivered in an obstetrician-led unit. They should have an individualised plan, including the potential role of intravenous access, a group and save in labour, and active management of the third stage of labour. This should be discussed and documented clearly in the birth plan or maternity notes. Postnatal anemia is defined as a haemoglobin of less than 100 grams per litre. The risk of postnatal anemia is reduced by identification and management of iron deficiency in the antenatal period. Women with uncorrected anemia antenatally should have a haemoglobin check within 48 hours of birth, as should those who have had blood loss of more than 500 mils or symptoms suggestive of postpartum anemia. Blood loss at delivery is associated with fatigue and clinical assessment is necessary to consider the best method of iron replacement. Where there is no active bleeding or clinical requirement to increase haemoglobin urgently, oral iron should be sufficient, provided it's supported with information about the correct administration. Severe symptoms of anemia may require intravenous iron for faster benefit, and a large retrospective study of women with a postpartum haemoglobin of less than 80 grams per litre confirmed the efficacy of intravenous iron, with a mean increase in haemoglobin of 19 grams per litre in 7 days and 31 grams per litre in 14 days. Use of intravenous iron postpartum allows red cell transfusion to be avoided. However, transfusion may be needed if there is continued bleeding or risk of further bleeding, imminent cardiac compromise, or significant symptoms requiring urgent correction. If, after careful consideration, elective transfusion is required, a single unit should be given, followed by clinical reassessment and repeat haemoglobin. Women should be fully counselled about potential risks of transfusion and alternative treatments, and offered information. Consent should be obtained. The high prevalence of iron deficiency in pregnancy leads us to consider whether universal prophylaxis would be beneficial. But while regular antenatal iron supplementation reduces the risk of maternal anemia, there is less clarity on the impact of maternal and infant clinical outcomes. In a Cochrane review on use of intermittent iron, the quality of evidence on maternal and infant outcomes was overall assessed as low or very low there is a need for research on the role of preventative strategies. I hope this has given you a comprehensive overview of the UK guidelines on the management of iron deficiency in pregnancy. I have discussed the prevalence, the impact on the mother and baby, how to diagnose iron deficiency anemia and to consider risks of iron depletion in those who are not yet anemic. I have discussed oral and intravenous supplementation and considerations for intrapartum and postpartum care. To inform further guidelines on this subject, necessary research areas include the discovery of new biomarkers of iron deficiency, 
how best to identify at-risk women who are not yet anemic and how to manage them, determination of the optimal dose and frequency of oral supplements and the value of universal routine supplementation. So thank you for listening. For a full complement of all BSH guidelines, please visit the guidelines section on the BSH website. <laughs>